Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. I don't know how it is for you, but I know that each time I hear that song, I can't help but remember those moments. Those moments, I think, that happen in all of our lives, whether it's with family or friends in person or over the phone. Those moments when we know there is a conversation not being had, even though we are there in the same room together. Those moments when there we are almost touching and yet so clearly alone, be it fear or caution or whatever it is that is preventing us from speaking, preventing us from connecting there in that moment, those words left unsaid. So what in the heck am I doing then bringing in Emily Dickinson today? What the heck am I doing bringing in tell all the truth but tell it slant? when I, and I think you, know the pain of those unspoken words, those unhad conversations. I mean, this is the spiritual life we're talking about, right? This is a world of truth and honesty and directness and integrity. What are we doing talking about circuitry and wandering around and telling all the truth, but telling it slant? Well, I'll tell you, when this poem first came into my world, first came to my attention, it was put there squarely by a spiritual teacher that I trusted, that I still trust. And when he started speaking these words, reading this poem, when he said, tell all the truth but tell it slant, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck rising up. I thought, no, no, I have had enough of indirection. I am all about speaking the truth maybe in love, but definitely speaking the truth. And I heard in my head all the judgment and resistance and analysis going on. So I did what I have been trained to do, what Cammie was able to do in her courageous conversation with that six-year-old, to hear the reaction, the resistance, the analysis, the judgment going on in my head, and to take it and gently put it aside for a little while to try and open myself just as she did to what was actually going on in the moment. Now, over years now, I have lived with this poem, with this truth of tell all the truth but tell it slant, success in circuit lies. I've lived with it for years, and I feel like it is taking root, being illuminated more and more over time. And I wanted to share a bit about that with you today. But of course, I can't say it directly now, can I? That would be boring. So instead, I'm going to tell you about a couple of experiences I've had that have brought this poem more and more. 
to light for me. The first experience is one that's happened kind of again and again over time and washed over me. I don't know how it is for each of you, but for me, I have a number of friends who are in recovery from one kind of addiction or another. These friends of mine, they're in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, from overeating or gambling or sex addiction. They're in recovery, and over time, if these folks choose to participate in a 12-step recovery program, eventually they get to steps 8 and 9. Now, steps 8 and 9, as I understand them, tell the folks in recovery to do a couple of things. First, they have to make a list of the people they have harmed and then become willing to make amends to them all and then go and do it. Now, it's a pretty tall order, I think, for anyone. And as I've watched my friends take these steps, I have seen just how challenging it is for many of them to look for the first time in their lives at the devastation that their addiction and their actions have caused, the impact of their action and their inaction in their relationships. So to put this down on paper, to be brutally honest about it, to become willing to go to those people and make those amends and then to go do it. That is the work of steps eight and nine, as I understand it. Now, as I've watched folks do this work, I've often thought, this would be good for all of us, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) But I think all of us, at one time or another, addicted or not, in recovery or not, we have all squeezed too hard on that tube of toothpaste. We have all made mistakes. We have all done harm through action or inaction. We could all probably benefit from taking a look at that and then becoming willing and making amends for those actions. So I have been paying attention as I watch my friends walk through this process. And this is a bit of what I've seen. Now, after these folks in recovery, they make their list. They then take it to someone they trust and they share it out loud. They get counsel. They, see, they pray and they meditate. They write. They try their best to prepare themselves for the courageous conversations that are ahead. They do their best to let go of guilt and shame, to let go of a hoped-for outcome of these conversations. They do their best to focus more on how to make the changes inside that will prevent this thing from happening again than anything else. And I'll tell you, as I've watched my friends go through this, I've seen that the amends seem to fall into two categories. The first category I'll call the checkbook amends, or checkbook kind of amends. They're pretty straightforward. If there's money owed, it's repaid, or a plan is made to repay it. If someone has taken something that doesn't belong to them, they return it. If a promise has been made and not fulfilled, it is fulfilled. These are straightforward simple kinds of amends, even when they are anything but easy. These are the first kind I've seen people make. The second kind of amends I've come to call something called the living amends. These are often a little bit trickier. They end up being something that is more of a lifelong effort than a single conversation. Now, perhaps the living amend will come into play in a situation where words are pretty useless at this point when the toothpaste has been squeezed out of the tube where there's no putting it back in with words where only sustained action will actually make the repair that's necessary. Perhaps the amend can't be made directly because the person harmed has died or moved on or simply doesn't want to have anything to do 
with the recovering person anymore. Perhaps the harm done after reflection is part of a larger pattern. It didn't just impact one of the people close, but all of them. Maybe it's a larger pattern like dishonesty or infidelity. Maybe it's a larger problem or pattern like not really listening deeply to those around us. Maybe it's offering only conditional love. Maybe it's being overly controlling, or perhaps it's not really saying what you need from the other person. In these cases, when the pattern has emerged and it spans out over so many folks, perhaps this then is a situation where an amend of the living kind is called for. Now, living amends, as I've come to understand them, are about sustained changes in behavior. Like I said, they are a lifetime's worth of work rather than a single conversation. And a few of them that I have had the honor to witness have looked like this. A daughter who is distant from her family, who's had a tough relationship with them, who struggles for connection with them, commits to sending a card once a month to her mother. A man who has repeatedly lost friendships and relationships because of a quick temper, because of biting words, decides to join an anger management group. A person who has trouble listening, really listening to the important people in their life, decides to join a small group at church to practice and maybe bring those new skills home. Someone else who maybe offered up the gift of their child for adoption looks around and sees young people in need of love and care and offers it. Maybe somebody who undervalues themselves, who always puts themselves last, discovers finally their passion and leans into it again and again. These living amends, they take all kinds of shape, and what I've noticed is that they build on themselves, one action after another action after another action. Years pass, and you watch people and those around them change. That daughter who painfully and deliberately sent a card once a month to her mother is able to be there more often, is able to let the anger dissolve and maybe let the sadness that's really at the root of it come out more. Maybe the man or woman who struggled with anger or lying or infidelity takes on the challenge of understanding what's going on with them from the ground up seeks out the support that they need, and goes about changing themselves, creating relationships of honesty and openness and intimacy. These living amends, whatever shape they take, they're rarely direct. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Tell all the truth. Harm was done. Repair is called for. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Sometimes our repairs have to go sideways. Now that's one experience, one piece of this puzzle. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Here's one other experience. One other story from my own life I'll share with you. 
Some of you who were here for our Standing on the Side of Love service on September 30th have heard a bit of this, but I want to tell you a little bit more today. When my partner Loretta and I lived in Rochester, we bought our first house there. We had a one-and-a-half-year-old, almost two-year-old son at that time, and it was our first home purchase. It was a big deal, and I was really excited about it. Both of us were. To be able to have a place that we would call our home for a while, a place that was ours. We were excited like most folks are when they buy their first home, but I'll admit we had more than the usual amount of fear with us as well. You see, we only really knew one thing about the neighborhood, and that was who our next-door neighbors were going to be. And all we knew about them was that they belonged to the only conservative, evangelical megachurch in town. (laughs) And we knew, in fact, everybody in town knew what that church and what that pastor thought about any sexuality. It was bad. (laughs) And homosexuality, really, really bad. So I was worried. I think we were both worried approaching move-in day. And I'll admit, I had conversations playing in my head most of the time as I was trying to fall asleep at night. They were imagined conversations between me and our future neighbors. They weren't so much conversations, actually. (laughs) They were more of screaming matches. None of them went well in my mind. But I just kept taking a deep breath and moving forward. So we moved into our house, and pretty soon after that, that summer, it was our son's birthday. He had noticed, smartly, that there was a two-year-old boy next door, in addition to the parents, and he thought it would be pretty awesome to have another two-year-old boy to play with. So he asked us to invite them to his birthday party. Okay, we said. So we invited them, and they initially declined. And then there it is, the day of his party, and we're out on the front steps. We're welcoming our guests as they arrive, and we look over, and, well, there are our neighbors out on their front steps, clearly locked out of their house. Awkward. (laughs) But our son, our smarter-than-us toddler, runs over and says, Come in, come in, come to the party. And so they do. They come, they bring their two-year-old son, they sit off in the corner of our living room, refusing our offers of food and drink and kind of frantically checking their cell phone to see when the locksmith is going to show up. And meanwhile, our, of course, flamingly gay friends are making jokes and laughing and having a grand party, and the kids are running around enjoying the heck out of one another, having a blast. Now, It wasn't all that long after that encounter that our sons led the way again. And we found ourselves chasing them back and forth between our backyards just about every day as they lived into the joy of a fellow two-year-old next door with new toys and a backyard. And every day, pretty soon, we found ourselves there at 4 o'clock in one backyard or another, kind of talking about the ups and downs of parenting, enjoying the camaraderie of someone right there, who we could go and talk to. Now, over time, we both had our second children, and our connection deepened. A handmade quilt arrived at our door. It's the quilt our daughter still sleeps under. We found ourselves sharing bits of our lives over time. She would talk about how hard it was to have her sister, who she loved, living so far away in Germany. I would talk about how I hated having to go through the adoption process with our kids, the kids we had given birth to ourselves. 
She would talk about how it was a joy and a challenge to have her in-laws living nearby. We would talk about how scared we were when our family was suddenly on the front page of the newspaper when marriage equality was the issue of the day in New York, how scared we were of what might happen to us or our home. She would talk about the ups and downs, like I said, of parenting. We would, too. And as the time came for us to make this move to Minnesota, we shared with them, too, our fears about what it would be like to move to a state that did not have marriage equality for same-sex couples. As we were heading out of town, we got a text from them, from our neighbors that we love so dearly, and the text said this. I just want you guys to know that you are a shining example of why marriage should be equal for everyone. I never put much thought into it because it wasn't an issue that really touched me. But after having you guys as neighbors, I am adamantly on the side of love. It was a great moment for us. A great moment, I think, for all of us when we realized that not only had they changed, but we had too. It was a change, a transformation that took place only, I think, thanks to the lead of our much smarter than us children those two-year-olds who had absorbed the truth of religion from two very different churches, the truth that we are here to love one another. That is our work in the world. Regardless of our assumptions, regardless of our appearance, regardless of what we think is going to happen, we are here to love one another. That is what they showed us. They moved us into this courageous conversation that we never had directly This courageous conversation that required, as Justin said last week, that required heart courage of being who we were and hospitality of connecting, person to person, inviting each other over, offering food and drink, talking about what really mattered. These courageous conversations, sometimes they require words, sometimes they're better off without them. These courageous conversations conversations that call forth from us heart courage, deep hospitality. The theologian Matthew Fox talks about the small work in the great work that is ours to do. The small work in the great work of the ongoing creation. Each day, the opportunity for the small work is there for us. The small work of opening the door of speaking or not speaking the words, of daring to risk. Each day, the opportunity for the small work in the great work lies before us. There are courageous conversations for us to have, courageous conversations that sometimes ask for words and sometimes ask for so much more, for that simple truth. We are here to love one another. Friends, let us have those conversations. May it be so, and amen.